If a twisted monster of a man abducts a child in 1972, what kind of storm can we expect to make landfall later? How many lives will be destroyed by that storm? What kind of forces are at play when a family has two of its children consumed by noxious, unspeakable violence, one as the victim and one as the perpetrator? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who often looks around at the world and says, nope, and takes a nap instead. This podcast isn't making it any easier. This week, part two of the Stainer Brothers saga, Carrie Stainer. In last week's episode, a butterfly flapped its wings when seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was abducted in 1972, held for almost eight years, and escaped, saving another young boy in the process. If that doesn't make any sense, go back and listen to last week's episode. Before we jump in, I want to give you a quick warning that this episode deals with some pretty graphic violence. As per usual, I don't go into too much detail, but there is some mention of some horrific stuff. Please take care while listening. In this episode, part two of the Stainer Saga, that history ripples into an unexpected storm. Stephen's older brother, Carrie, will wind up speeding down a very dark road, set off, in part at least, by Stephen's abduction decades earlier. It's not often that tragedy strikes one family twice, especially a family as seemingly normal and happy as the Stainers from Northern California. As far as anyone knew, Delbert and Kay Stainer and their five children were your typical working-class family. Sure, money was tight, but they seemed to their neighbors to be just a regular family. Kay was often described in profiles later as somewhat cold and emotionally distant, but not like mommy dearest. And, as we all know, it's always the mother's fault. And sure, abuse isn't relative. Emotional distance or absence can sometimes be just as damaging as physical abuse. What I'm saying is, there were no reports of abuse. Neighbors didn't later say, yeah, something was definitely off with the stainers. They were always screaming and throwing things. In the last episode, I talked a bunch about the made-for-TV movie I Know My First Name is Steven that chronicled the kidnapping and eventual escape of Steven Stainer. The movie also portrayed the family as a typical, all-American, nothing-to-see-here-folks kind of family. In the movie, Carrie, Stephen's older brother, comes off as every little kid's dream big brother, the kind of guy who'll toss the old pigskin around with you and teach you about girls. But, as we've learned time and time again, looks can be deceiving. Turns out the Stainers may not have been as wholesome as we were led to believe. As I went over last episode, Delbert forbade Stephen to go to therapy, even though Stephen was clearly the poster child for someone who needed therapy. The reason, he claimed, was that therapy was for weaklings, and if Stephen went to therapy, it would reflect poorly on the family. God forbid. Perhaps if Stephen had gone to therapy, he wouldn't have ended up with the drug and alcohol problem that most likely led to him crashing his motorcycle and dying in his 20s. 
Well, Carrie Stainer's troubles may have begun long before Stephen went missing. According to Carissable.com or CarrieSable.com, which seems to be a website made by an amateur true crime enthusiast, Carrie was diagnosed when he was just three years old with a form of OCD that manifested itself as a compulsion to pull out his own hair. Side note, apparently this is a pretty common condition. It doesn't necessarily indicate any psychopathy or homicidal tendencies. I should mention, though, that this diagnosis isn't included in a pretty extensive profile about Carrie from Esquire in 2007. It's also a little difficult to swallow this, considering how anti-therapy the stainers were. It's hard to imagine them being like, sure, give our toddler an antidepressant, especially considering whatever antidepressants were available in the 1960s were probably just medicalized cocaine. Whether or not he'd developed the habit as a child, Carrie yanked his own hair out compulsively as a teen and adult, at least according to several pieces about him. Another compulsion that did develop when he was very young was incredibly explicit and violent thoughts about people, women in particular. By the time he was eight, Carrie was fantasizing about slaughtering grocery stores full of people and kidnapping a neighbor girl and keeping her locked in a bunker. Of course, he didn't tell anyone about these thoughts until he was in his 30s. It's not like he had a therapist who would have listened to him. Now, unfortunately, it's not hard these days to imagine a kid that young being exposed to that kind of imagery through video games and the internet or whatever, but this wasn't even the 1970s yet. Atari hadn't even released Pong. There was no Grand Theft Auto or 4chan where some innocent little kid might stumble upon images of incredible violence. I'm not suggesting the world was all rainbows and lollipops in the 1960s. I'm just saying a kid couldn't just Google torture porn back then, you know? It gives you pause to wonder where the hell that imagery was coming from. Carrie was 11 and trying to cope with all of this when Stephen disappeared on his way home from school in 1972. In the seven years that Stephen was gone, Carrie struggled with his reputation. I'm sure it's not easy being known as the kid whose brother went missing. But, it seems, having a missing brother may not have been the only reason the other kids thought Carrie was a little off. You can wear a hat to cover the bald spots where you tore your own hair out, and you can keep your mouth shut about the violent fantasies you entertain, but there are only so many symptoms you can try to hide before your illness becomes obvious. Just about six months after his brother went missing, Carrie was molested by his uncle, a fact that didn't come out until years later. I couldn't track down which uncle this was or what side of the family he was from. Later, according to a story on abcnews.com, Carrie had exposed himself to his sister's friend when she spent the night at the Stainer house. And a piece on ane.com cites a cousin of Carrie's claiming that Carrie regularly peeped on his sisters and neighbor girls, hiding under their beds and secretly videotaping them. This could, of course, just be a rumor, but I think it's safe to say that Carrie had some unhealthy compulsions and a hard time connecting with women. 
Once Stephen returned home from his ordeal, it's not like life for Carrie suddenly got better. Carrie went from being the kid whose brother was kidnapped to the kid whose brother was a hero and had a TV movie made about him. Not to mention the fact that his mother would forget to set him a place at the dinner table, and his dad, continuing his bid for worst dad ever, spent the seven-plus years Stephen was gone somehow blaming Carrie and telling him Stephen was his real son, which is a weird roundabout way of telling your kid you hate them. Unless Carrie was actually the secret love child from an affair his mother had, Carrie was definitely Delbert's son. He might as well have said Stephen was the son he really loved, or something. To escape his crap circumstances at home, Carrie, now 18, would drive into the mountains of Yosemite where he would usually find a secluded area, smoke a joint, and get naked. Look, if it's not hurting anyone else, get yourself care however you can, you know? Almost every story I read about Carrie mentions his obsession with Bigfoot. But from what I can tell, the Bigfoot thing is just sort of a red herring. Like, it has nothing to do with anything else. He himself only claimed to have seen Bigfoot once. It's not like he was that guy at the bar who was constantly claiming to have seen old Bigfoot again. Like, I saw Colin Farrell at Starbucks once when I was on Mushrooms, and I like to tell people about it, but I'm not, like, obsessed with Colin Farrell. Did I watch his sex tape? Of course I did. But, like, it's not an intrinsic part of my personality. If people are trying to imply that Carrie believing in Bigfoot had anything to do with what he did a few years later, I don't see it. Plenty of people believe in Bigfoot. Hell, even I'm on the fence about Bigfoot. Why can't we just leave her out of this? Eventually, his occasional escapes into the mountains weren't enough, so Carrie beat it out of the family home and went to live with his uncle Jerry. It's unclear if this is the same uncle who allegedly molested him shortly after Stephen had gone missing. But by all accounts, Carrie and his uncle Jerry had a good relationship. Carrie worked at a local glass and window company. But then, a little more than a year after Stephen died in a motorcycle accident, in 1990, Uncle Jerry was found dead of a shotgun blast to the chest in the house he shared with Carrie. Carrie's alibi was that he was at work when the shooting took place. He also mentioned a vagrant who'd been lurking around the house in the days before the murder. The vagrant was never found. I don't even know if there was a vagrant. And those of us who've paid enough attention to true crime know all too well that plenty of people have claimed to have been at work when they were actually committing murder. I'm not saying Carrie killed his uncle. I'm just saying. The crime was never solved. It seems like Carrie kept his head down for a few years after his uncle's death, but one night at a local bar, he was on edge and told a friend he couldn't handle it anymore. When she asked him what he meant, he said he had thoughts and that sometimes he felt happy and other times he felt, quote, really, really angry. And like, same, buddy. But a few days later at work, he told his coworker Michael, quote, man, I don't feel so good. I don't feel right. And when Michael walked back in from loading a truck, Carrie was driving his bloody fist into a sheet of wood over and over. Naturally, Michael was like, what the fuck, dude? And Carrie said he was freaking out, which, you know, obviously. 
Michael said he thought maybe Carrie had a chemical imbalance, and Carrie said someone had told him once that his brain chemistry was off. Michael said, you gotta go see a doctor. They got pills for that stuff. Take a pill and you'll be all fixed. Which isn't the world's most accurate statement. Like, maybe also talk to a therapist. But it was, so far, the most reasonable and helpful thing anyone had said to anyone else in this entire saga. But Carrie said, quote, I don't know, Mike. I just feel like getting in the truck and driving it through the wall and killing Gordon and getting out and killing everyone and just torching the place. Gordon was their boss. Later, Michael would tell a reporter that, sure, Gordon could be tough, but he liked Carrie. Killing him seemed drastic. Despite Carrie's graphic admission to wanting to kill Gordon, Michael called Gordon and told him Carrie needed help immediately. And then Gordon, the boss Carrie said he wanted to kill, did the world's most obvious thing, a thing it seems his parents only did once when Carrie was three. He took Carrie to a psychiatric center for help. Not only that, but he sat with Carrie in the waiting room for over an hour and told Carrie to take as long as he needed and that his job would be waiting for him when he was ready. And this strikes me as the kindest thing anyone had done for Carrie up until this point in his life. At this point, Carrie was in his 30s, and it seems like the first time anyone had ever seen him. Unfortunately, Carrie did not take the time afforded to him to get the help he clearly needed. He left the psychiatric center a couple hours after Gordon did, and three days later, he hightailed it out of town into Yosemite, where there were miles and miles of forest land in which he could get high and naked and entertain some of those thoughts that had been driving him crazy. By 1997, Carrie Stainer was working as a maintenance person at the Cedar Lodge in Yosemite. Less lodge and more Bates Motel with a pool, the Cedar Lodge was a 206-room motel mostly serving tourists during the warmer months. Carrie lived in a room at the motel and was apparently really good at his job. He mostly kept to himself, either by choice or because his idea of making friends was telling local high school girls that he was a sun worshiper. One such teenage girl was Jen Yates, whose mother and stepfather ran the bar and restaurant at the lodge. Jen didn't seem too creeped out by Carrie's eccentricities, but her mother, Trisha, was not a fan. Jen and Carrie would go for long walks or sit by the river together. There's no mention of them having any kind of physical contact, though it's hard to imagine what a man in his mid-30s with poor social skills and a teenage girl would have to, like, talk about, so who knows. Trisha, for her part, tried to keep Carrie away from her daughter, though in my opinion, not hard enough, and despite telling him she would, quote, rip his dick off and shove it down his throat if he went near her daughter again, it wasn't until Carrie invited Jen up to his room where she was apparently creeped out by how clean it was. He had apparently put a sanitized for your protection strip on his own personal toilet. I guess that was weird enough, but when he started pulling his hair out and complaining about his, quote, bitchy sisters, Jen was finally spooked enough to get out of there. Jen had no idea at that point that she had quite literally dodged a bullet. Two years later, four unsuspecting, innocent women would have the terrible misfortune to cross paths with Carrie Stainer, 
And unlike Jen, they wouldn't have the chance to get away. In February of 99, three Yosemite tourists, Carol Sund, her daughter Julie, and Julie's friend Silvina Peloso, had enjoyed a day of off-season activities before settling into their room at the nearby empty Cedar Lodge for the night. Around 11 p.m., there was a knock on the door, and the maintenance man, Carrie Stainer, told the women he was responding to reports of a leak coming from their room. Carol, obviously suspicious, checked around the room and told him there was no leak. Carrie was persistent about checking their room until Carol finally opened the door and let him in. You know how these days, if someone comes to your hotel room for repairs or to drop off room service or whatever, they position a door lock so the door can't close all the way? That rule was put in place because of things like what happened next to Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. Carrie went into the bathroom and came out a few minutes later with a gun he told the panicked trio that he was just going to rob them. But he bound and gagged them with duct tape, put the two teenagers in the bathroom, and strangled Carol to death on the bed in the motel room. He then dragged her body out into the parking lot and put her in the trunk of her rental car. It's astounding that no one saw him, and there was apparently not a single security camera to catch what was going on. Carrie returned to the room, took Sylvina out of the bathroom, and did the same thing to her as he'd done to Carol. He placed her in the trunk next to Carol. Again, not a single person saw anything unusual going on. Carrie did not kill Julie Sund right away. And you know me, I'm not going to go into detail, but he did what you'd expect a truly disturbed man with violent thoughts and no social skills who'd already expressed an unhealthy interest in teenage girls would do with a teenage girl he had captive. Woman-hating behavior 101. After doing what he did to her in the motel room, Carrie then brought Julie out to the rental car in which her mother and friend were lying dead in the trunk. It was four in the morning, and still no one had noticed Carrie escorting a teenaged hotel guest into her mother's rental car. Julie had no idea her mother and friend were in the trunk. Carrie drove them to a secluded spot in the woods where he carried Julie to an overlook point, assaulted her again, and then killed her, nearly cutting off her head in the process, and left her in some bushes. He then drove the women's rental car a few hundred feet down an old logging road and left it there, walked about two miles to the nearest town and called a cab. The cab driver, a woman named Jenny Paul, didn't think much of the 90-mile trip with Carrie, which is remarkable because you'd think he must have been covered in blood. Even if he had cut Julie's throat from behind, which apparently he did, still, you'd think a guy who just killed three women would look pretty awful. Jenny said the only remarkable thing about the trip was that Carrie asked her if she believed in Bigfoot. She said no, and he said, you should because he's real. In retrospect, there were two remarkable things about that ride. One, that Jenny had no idea how lucky she was that Carrie didn't feel like continuing his killing spree, making her his next victim. And two, 
Carrie asked to be dropped off at the Yosemite Lodge, which was not only a full 40-minute drive from the Cedar Lodge, where Carrie worked and lived, but was also, coincidentally, a place where Kenneth Parnell, the man who had abducted Carrie's brother Stephen almost 20 years earlier, had once worked. I don't think Carrie knew that. I don't think he asked to get dropped off there out of, like, nostalgia. I think it was just a freaky coincidence. I suppose there are only so many places to live and work in Yosemite, but still. Along with not noticing two corpses and a hostage being dragged out of the hotel in the middle of the night, no one noticed that the three women were missing until they failed to meet Carol's husband at the airport in San Francisco two days later. Even he wasn't that alarmed that his wife and the two girls didn't meet him at the airport. He somehow convinced himself that the women would meet him at their next rendezvous point in Phoenix, where they were all planning on going to visit the Grand Canyon. Even though the last time he'd spoken to his wife was two days earlier when she was in Yosemite, and they confirmed their plans to meet in San Francisco. Apparently, he went and played an entire round of golf before thinking he might want to alert the police that his wife and daughter and her friend seemed to be missing. Yosemite police suspected the women had gotten into a car accident in a remote part of Yosemite National Park until two days after they were reported missing and part of Carol's wallet was found on the roadside in Modesto, California, on the edge of the park. The wallet, it turned out, had been intentionally left there to throw police off. In the two days before the women were reported missing, Carrie had gone back to the car, set it on fire, and dropped the wallet in Modesto to lead police away from the scene of the crime. It would be another month before a hiker would happen upon the burnt-out car and alert police. When news of the discovery made it to the local papers, Carrie wrote a letter to the FBI telling them where Julie's body could be found. Apparently, he had someone else lick the envelope for him, which is... I mean, how does that work, exactly? Hey, Bob. Yeah, Bob? Could you, uh, lick this envelope addressed to the FBI for me? Yeah, sure thing, Bob. Sounds like a totally normal, everyday kind of thing a buddy asks for. Or... Hey, Bob. Yeah, Bob? Could you, uh, lick this envelope addressed to the FBI for me? I don't know, Bob. Sounds fishy. There's 50 bucks and a case of Miller High Life in it for you if you do. What? Damn, why didn't you say so? Hand me that envelope already. Men are a strange species, I tell ya. Carrie mailed the envelope from Stockton, even farther away from the scene of the crime than Modesto. The FBI then decided they were looking for either two killers or a gang of killers, and fortunately for them, and Carrie, I guess, they had arrested a few crank freaks, their words, not mine, for other crimes and decided it was likely them that killed the women. Never mind that there was not a stitch of actual evidence linking those men to the killing, nor any confessions. No matter. I'm sure it looked good on the books to say they'd had the culprits locked up. Nothing to see here, folks. Five months went by in which the FBI, I'm sure, were patting themselves on the back for a job well done. Meanwhile, Carrie was still out in the world, ruminating on what he'd done and planning on doing it again. 
On July 21st, 1999, Carrie drove to a remote cabin in Yosemite where 26-year-old Joey Armstrong lived with her boyfriend and roommate. Armstrong was a naturalist who worked for Yosemite teaching tourists about the beauty of the natural wonders of the national park. Her boyfriend and roommate were both out of town when Carrie happened upon her alone at the cabin. She had apparently already expressed to friends her fear of staying in the cabin alone, especially considering the three women who had been killed in the park months before. And honestly, even without the murders, no one should ever stay in a cabin anywhere alone. I'm not victim-blaming. I'm just generally terrified of everything. Carrie got out of his truck and tried to make small talk, which I think we can all agree is probably not something he did well anyway, and then forced Armstrong into her cabin at gunpoint, where he bound her hands and gagged her, and then marched her out to his truck. God bless Joey Armstrong, who, despite having her hands bound and probably being scared out of her mind, had the presence of mind to wrangle the passenger door open and jump out of the moving truck. She managed to make it about 150 yards into the woods. A couple hundred yards more and she would have made it to a friend's cabin. But Carrie caught up with her and decapitated her. And not to be too graphic, but just to give you a picture, this wasn't like a mortal combat thing where someone swiftly slices someone else's head off while yelling, finish him, or whatever. This was not swift. And when he had finally removed her head, Carrie dragged her body and dumped it in a drainage ditch and left her head 40 feet away. Joey Armstrong's murder was Carrie's undoing. Because Joey was a local and presumably because she hadn't shown up wherever she was supposed to be the next day, it didn't take long for police to find her body and search her cabin. Carrie had left enough evidence in the cabin and witnesses had spotted his truck near her cabin that Carrie was brought in for questioning. He quickly confessed to all four murders and described the details, according to FBI agent John Bowles, as if he was reading a soup can label. Ted Rowlands, a local reporter, asked to interview Carrie, and Carrie asked him to get in touch with Hollywood producers to have a movie of the week made about his story the way his brother Stephen got when he escaped his nightmare all those years ago. Oh boy. This guy brutally killed four women and thought he'd get a fucking TV movie out of it. So, throughout these two episodes, I've gently hinted at there being another reason Stephen and Carrie's dad, Delbert, was so anti-therapy. He said it was because he thought therapy was for weaklings, but it turns out he may have had some pretty gnarly skeletons of his own he didn't want to tumble out of the closet. A psychiatrist who evaluated Carrie for his defense team apparently uncovered generations of sexual abuse in the Stainer family, with Delbert himself supposedly having been ordered into therapy for abusing his own daughters. The psychiatrist said the abuse went back five generations, which, in my opinion, makes the information slightly less reliable. Like, five generations? Seriously? Someone was tracking this family's abuse since the turn of the 20th century, and no one ever did anything about it? 
That said, most people assume the abuse Kay referred to from her Catholic boarding school days was likely sexual, and there seemed to be whispers here and there that her own father had molested her. So there is strong suspicion that there was some history of abuse at least back one or two generations. In his book, In the Name of the Children, an FBI agent's relentless pursuit of the nation's worst predators, Special Agent Jeffrey Reinick claims that after his arrest, Carrie asked for pornographic photos and videos of little girls, and that the reward money put together by Carol Sun's parents to find out what happened to their daughter and granddaughter be given to his own parents for the grief and hardship they would face once his crimes became public. For the record, the FBI complied with neither of those requests. It's hard to know if Reinick didn't embellish for dramatic purposes. It's certainly believable that Carrie would ask for disgusting photos and the reward money, but it's the five generations of sexual abuse uncovered by Carrie's own defense team that seems a little hard to swallow. I'm sure that answer exists in court records, but honestly, I think we've given this garbage stain enough of our time and attention. Chaos theory tells us that life is unpredictable and that while you can trace the line from one event to another in retrospect, it's impossible to say ahead of time how one event will trigger another. The biggest takeaway from this whole tragedy, the strangest and most unexplained thing of all, isn't that Stephen's kidnapping triggered Carrie's killing rampage. It is that so many troubled people here did not receive the help they desperately needed before it was too late. If you are the survivor of a kidnapping and torture, or if you think kidnapping and torture is an okay thing to do, or if you have thoughts of harming other people, or you compulsively tear your hair out, or you find yourself generally unhappy, or you sometimes wonder if your thoughts are normal, or if you're just a person living in the world, Please, please, for everyone's sake, talk to someone about it. It may be your one chance to batten down the hatches and prepare for whatever chaos storm the butterfly's wings may send your way. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, a mysterious woman shows up dead on a beach in New England. Fifty years later, still, no one knows who she is or what happened to her. The Lady of the Dunes. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca D. Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Ryan Garcia. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 